Praise the Lord. Amen. Time and time again. Thank you, ladies, so much for that. Man, I almost embarrassed to preach after that beautiful message and song. <laughs> if you have your Bibles, turn with me, if you would, to Genesis chapter 32. Book of Genesis chapter 32. There are, there are stories in the Scripture that when we can stop and we consider them, it changes how we see them. So oftentimes we can read a story through the Scripture and forget that there are real people with real problems, with real emotions behind the black letters on the page. And uh, sometimes, sometimes the, it helps us if we can step into their shoes for just a little while and imagine what it must like been like for them. I invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word, Genesis chapter 32. I'll just give you the, the background. Jacob is coming home after 20 years. And uh, Esau is coming. And uh, Jacob's fear and has caused him to place his servants on the other side of the, of the river. And, and uh, then he had his family. And he has stayed behind. He's alone. And it's getting evening time and and uh, perhaps even dark. We'll pick up our reading there in verse 24, Genesis 32, beginning in verse 24. And Jacob was left alone, and there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. And when he saw that he prevailed not against him, he touched the hollow of his thigh, and the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, Let me go, for the day breaketh. And he said, I will not let thee go, except thou bless me. And he said unto him, What is thy name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, Thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. For as a prince hast thou power with God and with men, and hast prevailed. And Jacob asked him and said, Tell me, I pray thee, thy name. And he said, Wherefore is it that thou dost ask after my name? And he blessed him there. And Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. And as he passed over Peniel, the sun rose upon him, and he halted upon his thigh. And therefore the children of Israel eat not of the sinew, which shrank, and which is upon the hollow of the thigh unto this day, because he touched the hollow of Jacob's thigh in the sinew that shrank. As the Lord would help us this morning, I'd like to speak to us about walking with a limp. Walking with a limp. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness to us. Thank you for that beautiful song that we heard this morning. Time and time again, you've come to our rescue. And Lord, only you know how many times. How many times. Lord, we ask that this morning you would help us as we endeavor to rightly divide the word of truth. May you be glorified and honored in it. We ask these things in your precious name. Amen. You may be seated. Jacob is in a tough place. On one side, his father-in-law is angry with him. And that's never a good situation. They've had to, his father-in-law has chased him down, had, had been angry with him. They, they had words. They made a covenant and a sacrifice. And the promise that Jacob made is that he would not cross over that 
hump of stones, that heap of stones there. So he can't go back. And now is on the other side of him, he has a brother that he has wronged. Perhaps you remember the story 20 years before this. He, Jacob had stolen the birthright. And Esau made this promise. He said, when my father dies, I'm going to take an arrow and put it in Jacob's chest. I'm going to kill him. Wow. And do you know something about grudges is that time doesn't seem to make grudges better. They seem to make grudges worse. As we hold on to our anger and our bitterness, it festers. It makes us almost like having a poison in our system. It poisons every day. It poisons every relationship. It poisons so much of our life. In fact, I would say all of our life when we hold on to a grudge, even to the point where medical science tells us that holding a grudge will cause us to die younger just simply because we cannot forgive. And here Esau comes. And you know, he, he, didn't, he, he didn't come alone. He brought 400 men with him. Well, that sounds like a peaceful envoy, doesn't it? I mean, you're going to come out to meet your brother that you haven't seen in 20 years, and so you bring 400 men with you. Wow, isn't that exciting? I don't know that I want to meet anybody who's coming to visit me with 400 men. I don't think the president goes around with that many secret servicemen. This probably means war. And it probably means, based on the math, that Jacob and his family are going to be killed in the morning. And Jacob is desperate. He's desperate. He sent gifts to try to appease his brother. But you and I both know that a grudge is not easily forgiven with gifts. He has sent his family over. He is alone. And he begins to pray. His nerves are on edge. He is worried. He's full of anxiety. He's, he's, he's trying to pray. He's trying to get through to God. He's, he's trying to remind God of, of the promises that they had made, that he made when he had the dream of the ladder. He's, he's, he's trying to somehow break through all of these emotions that he's feeling. It's become, becoming darker and darker. Jacob prays. And as Jacob is perhaps pacing backwards and forth, out of the darkness leaps a figure. And Jacob, fight or flight response takes play. It takes, kicks into action. He begins to wrestle with this person. This is a life and death match. He doesn't know, but this might be Esau's uh, assassin. He doesn't know, but this might be uh, someone who has been hired by Esau to kill him before they even have a chance to meet. And on and on they wrestle. The adrenaline pumping through their, uh, uh, Jacob's blood, his, 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 the, the panic losing could mean death. Praying is stopped and wrestling becomes all that matters. Survival is all that matters. And Jacob is desperate to win. I've never fought for my life. I fought, but I've never fought for my life. This kind of wrestling is not 
the wrestling that you see uh, high school boys compete in, where they have a referee and headgear and and they're just going at it with under very strict rules. It's not that. This isn't that fake nonsense that they sell on TV. This is hand-to-hand combat where every muscle in your body is working to keep you alive. And Jacob wrestles and wrestles. It doesn't tell us how long they wrestled. We often think it was all night because at the end it talks about Jacob uh, leaving at the break of day, talking about uh, that the angel says, let me go, for for the day is breaking. But we don't know when the angel showed up. If he showed up at midnight and the sun rose at six, we're talking six hours of wrestling. I tell you what, some of you couldn't handle six minutes of wrestling. And I certainly couldn't last much more than that myself. Not that kind of wrestling. Not that kind of wrestling. All night they wrestle. Finally, the angel. And I should say that most, most scholars believe, and I, and I think is correct, this is the pre-incarnate Christ. Because Jacob would say, I've seen God face to face and have lived. As they're wrestling, the angel of the Lord touches the hollow of his thigh and the sinew shrank. And you know what's wonderful about this is nobody knows what they're talking about. Jewish commentators, uh, Christian commentators, medical science, we have no idea what, he, what happened here. Isn't that fun? I can't, get, I can't help you here. But here's what we know. Jacob is in pain. He is in incredible amount of pain. And yet Jacob is holding on. The angel says, let me go. The day breaks. The insinuation is, we both have things to do today. I don't know what... I don't know what the angel had to do. I don't know what I don't. I don't know what if it was Christ, if if it if what he had to do that day. But we know that Jacob has a full schedule. He has a family to take care of. He's got a brother to meet. He's got responsibilities that this day has to be taken care of. He can't put it off anymore. He cannot reschedule for next week, like we like to do with doctor's visits that we don't want to go to. There's no putting it off. Esau is coming. The angel says, let me go. Jacob says, no. I'm not letting you go. I don't care how much pain I'm in. I'm going to hold on to you until you bless me. I'm not sure what Jacob was asking for in the blessing. I don't know if he realized that it, it was God that he was wrestling with at some point in this, in this match or if it was just simply he wanted a promise that if he let him go that he wouldn't be killed. We don't know what he was, Jacob was, was thinking when he asked for the blessing. And the angel says, what is your name? My name's Jacob. He says, you're not going to be Jacob anymore. It's going to be Israel. You're going to be a prince with God and man. You're going to prevail with both. And Jacob says, what's your name? <laughs> and I love it. This is the Jeremy unauthorized version, but he basically says, none of your business. <laughs> What are you doing asking me my name? I was that I think at that moment that Jacob realized who he was wrestling with. 
that moment becomes clear. Jacob and lets him go, and they, he begins to make his way across the ford, and he begins walking with a limp. Now, there's some disagreement on this limp. Adam Clark believes as the sun came up that he was healed. And he has some verse, I think, in Hosea that he uses to back it up. It doesn't, it doesn't seem to me to, to really fit. But I'm not going to argue with Adam Clark. He's a lot smarter than me. There are some who believe that it was just a, 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 an injury that took a while to heal. Maybe a week or a month or a year, but eventually it would heal. And there's a host of people, commentators, who believe that for the rest of his life, Jacob walked with a limp. And I, this is just my opinion. You can take it or leave it this morning. But it's my belief that he walked the rest of his life with a limp because when the Lord touches you, it leaves a forever impression. Take it or leave it. This morning, that limp, I would suggest, was very important. For one, I, I believe that it indicated to Jacob that he did not just have a vision. This was a real-life battle. This was not just something he dreamt. It's not like the latter he dreamt about. This really happened. There's some commentators like John Calvin who, who believes it was a vision, but I just this limp, I believe, really signified to Jacob, that this was a real event. He didn't just imagine it. It wasn't just something he ate the night before. This really happened. But I think something more important about that is, I believe it was a reminder to him. I think it was a reminder to him. I believe that... First of all, that it was a reminder that he had prevailed in the struggle. That he had prevailed in the struggle. All of us have struggles. All of us have battles. All of us have gone to the Lord. If you've been serving the Lord for any length of time, you've gone to the place of prayer and you've had to wrestle with the Lord. Some have had to wrestle for holiness. Some have had to wrestle for a loved one that was sick. Some have wrestled over financial situations. You've just gone to the place of prayer and begin to wrestle. But one of the great themes throughout the scripture is that deliverance usually only comes until the person who needs delivered is desperate. Desperation precedes deliverance. Jacob was, was desperate. The situation is desperate. Laban on one side, Esau on the other. Nowhere for him to go but to the place of prayer. But you know, there's something interesting that you know, we can think we're desperate and, and then suddenly the situation gets worse and we get really desperate. We get really desperate. I remember I was in Bible college and I was in, having one of those situations that I was wrestling with the Lord and the Lord just didn't seem to be answering my prayer. And I got desperate and I did something that was probably foolish. I told the Lord, I said, I am not eating another bite of food until you give me an answer. I'm going to fast until you give me an answer. That was uh, a declaration of my de uh, dependence and desperation on the Lord. I don't recommend it, unless you're really desperate. I, I set my, my line in the sand. I, I said, this is, I, uh, I have got to have an answer. I'm not saying it has to be yes. I'm not demanding my way. I'm just saying I must have an answer. I cannot go any longer waiting for an answer. Have to have one. I was desperate. At least I thought I was. 
It was day three of this fast. And if you've ever been to Penview or you've seen the pictures, Penview is famous for their steps of doom. Penview, the school, the school is set up on a, on a hill. They call it a hill. Think more mountain. <laughs> At least it feels that way. And they had, and whoever built the steps to that thing, however long ago, Lord bless them, but oy, oy, oy. Each of the steps is a different length. They're miserable. Especially when you're running late for class. Which I never did. Yeah, right. <laughs> But I'm on day three of this fast. And you all didn't know me then, but, but I was thinner than a toothpick. I know, it's hard to believe. It's my wife's good cooking. I blame her 100%. She force-fed me against my will. <laughs> I was, I was bean, bean pole thin. And by day three, climbing those steps was a real effort. I went to class, and Trisha is pleading with me to eat. She has seen that I have, that I have really don't have any energy left. I was not only in school, but I was also working. And, uh, and also, I'd, I don't think I'd, up to that point, I'd ever fasted longer than 24 hours. This was, this was way more than I'd ever done before. I hadn't worked up to it. I just did something out of what I thought was desperation. I remember that I went back to my room after class, and you know, the prayers suddenly became truly desperate. But I remember as I wrestled with the Lord in my dorm room all alone on that third day, I said, Lord, I really meant it. Either I'm going to die or you're going to answer. And when I got to that place, God sent the answer. Now, I'm not suggesting you do that. But there's a difference between thinking we're desperate and really being desperate before the Lord. Vance Havner says that the times are desperate, but the saints are not. We've, we've become strangers to the place of wrestling with the Lord because we have not gotten to the place of desperation that Jacob got into. Some of the time that the reason that, we have, that we've avoided that, that wrestling mat of prayer is because either we don't realize our situation or we are purposely trying to avoid it. There was a story, I believe it's from the 1800s, of, of an author, Alexander Dumas, who had gotten into an argument with a young politician, and the argument became heated, and finally they decided that the only answer was a duel. But both of them were excellent shots, and they each knew it. And so they decided that instead of a duel, because it was probably likely that they both would be killed, that they would draw lots and whoever lost would have to shoot themselves. Well, not a good solution. And of course, they, they drew their lots and Alexander Dumas lost. This was a group of people here, friends and family. We're all there and when Dumas saw that he lost, he, he took his, his gun and very solemnly, but very quietly, not saying a word, went into another room and closed the door. And in just a few moments, they heard the shot ring out. 
and the friends and family that had gathered there for this tragic situation rushed into the room, opened the door, and there stood Dumas with the gun still smoking, completely unharmed. And he said, most regrettably, I missed. <laughs> I think that was probably the right thing to do. But, spiritually speaking, I fear that there are many of us who are missing on purpose. Missing on purpose. We haven't gotten to the place where we're willing to be honest about our spiritual condition. We haven't been willing to get serious about where we stand and we go through the motions, and it looks good, and it makes for great theater, but it's not getting the job done. I was a young preacher. I don't even know how long I'd been pastoring. I was still in my first church. I was as green as they come. We were at camp meeting, and there was a lady in the camp that for years and years and years had been seeking holiness. I don't know how long it was. She was a grandma. I don't know how long she'd sought holiness, but she just couldn't get through. I don't know how many nights during that encampment that she went to the altar seeking to get sanctified. People worked with her. People would pray with her. People would, would, would try to counsel her and try to, try to help her. And, uh, and, and she just couldn't get through. And to be honest, I think she had wearied some of the saints time the last night had come. This had happened in previous encampments. She just was not getting through. And that last Sunday night of camp, I suspect that most didn't think she'd get through. Everybody else who had gone to the altar had, had left. They had, they had made their way back to their seats or had left the tabernacle. And here this lady continued to pray. I don't know how many people were gathered, 30, 40 people. It was, it was a crowd. And I was on the outside of, the, of that, I'd call, it's not really a circle, but you know what I mean, that mass of people and... As I was praying, I don't know why the Lord did this, but the Lord told me why she wasn't getting sanctified. And I said to myself, why in the world would the Lord tell me? Because there's evangelists and, and a bunch of gray-headed people up there, and I'm as green as can be. Why, why would he tell me? And, and so I, I tried to just keep praying that, and I felt the Lord nudge me again. This is what her issue is. This is what she won't put on the altar. Well, not too far away was her daughter. She was a pastor's wife. And so I made my way to her daughter and I, I said to her, I said, I believe that the Lord has told me what the problem is. And I told the, this daughter what, what I believed was the problem. And she said, you go up there and tell her. Well, I don't want to tell her. I mean, they're the evangelist or are on the other side of the altar praying with her. There's a whole bunch of people around her. And you know, walking through the mass of people is never fun. I didn't want to go up there. And what if I was wrong? What if it was, you know, something I had for supper? I don't know. I'm young. I'm, I'm really ignorant. And so I just prayed. And her daughter said, Jeremy, go up there and tell her what the Lord told you. Well, I usually listen to my elders. I said usually. So I made my way through the crowd and got around to the other side of the, of the, of the altar. My heart's beating a million miles. <laughs> well, not miles an hour, but beats per mile, <laughs> a minute. Just feels like it's going to blow up in my chest as, as all these great evangelists and great men of God, I'm stepping in front of them, kneeling in front of her, 
And I said, I believe the Lord has revealed that this is your issue. And I, I, I said it. And she looked at me with wide eyes. She said, that's it. That's it. That is it. And a lady who had prayed for years and years to be sanctified was sanctified in about one minute of prayer, maybe two. You see, is it the struggle that brings the victory? It's the surrender. It's when Jacob was finally able to, to say, my name is Jacob. I'm a deceiver. I deceived my, my brother and I deceived my father and I, I deceived my uncle Laban repeatedly. I have lived my life in deception that my name is right. I am a heel grasper. I'm a deceiver. It's who I am. It's my nature. And I admit it before Almighty God. That's when he got the victory. The hours of wrestling that took place before this were nothing. They were unimportant. Except for they brought him to the place where he finally could admit where he was. Jacob, as he was walking with that limp, was reminded that he had prevailed in the struggle, not because of his strength and not because of his might, not because that he has some special power over God that other people don't have. It was because he finally got to the place where he could surrender and say, this is my problem. This is who I am. This is my need. This is my need. Are you desperate this morning? As we headed closer and closer to revival and just two days. Brother Tucker will be here. And the question is, are we desperate? Are we desperate? We talk about a culture that's closing in around us. We talk about the needs that are so great. We, we talk about uh, our need to, to be ready. But are we desperate? John F. Kennedy remarked to... I believe it was some of his cabinet members, but he said this. He said, most presidents, when they leave office, leave feeling that they have left work undone. He said, I don't have much time to do the work that I need to do. What he didn't know is three weeks later, he'd be assassinated. He didn't realize how short of time he had left to get the work accomplished that he wanted to do. I'm afraid this morning we are not aware of how short the time really is to get accomplished what needs to be done for God. Jacob had prevailed in the struggle. But as Jacob is walking, making his way across the ford with that, that limp, not only did, he, did it remind him that he prevailed in the strong, struggle, but that he had a princely status. Names don't mean a whole lot to us these days. We don't name our children usually because of what the name means. Certainly, we didn't name Dennis for that purpose. The name Dennis means the follower of the Greek god Dionysius, which is the god of wine. Okay, so Dennis did not get named for, for any deep spiritual meaning or any great, uh, you know, something, you know, I, I really hope he doesn't become an alcoholic when he grows up. Um, if he does, I might really regret the name choice that we gave him. No, we named Dennis his name because it was my father's name and it has sentimental meaning to us. But his name's meaning doesn't really do something for us. We didn't name Brandon after what his name means. What is it, broom on a hill? Something like that. It doesn't mean anything. He's not, we did not think that it was a good to name him after weeds that are used to make brooms. I, we just didn't think that's what we should name him. 
Now, Brandon will tell you that there's something about princely or something or other. Yeah, he, there's, you know, different book, na baby name books will give different meanings. And so Brandon has picked the best one that he likes. But we didn't name Brandon after a prince. And we certainly didn't name him after weeds that grow on a hill. But sometimes names do mean something. And sometimes they play a role in it, don't they? Eliana's name means something. Eliana's name is Eliana and Janae, and Eliana means God has heard, and Janae means God has answered or God has given a gift. And so her name means God has heard and answered. And what most of you may or not know is that while Trisha was pregnant for Eliana, there was a lot of medical problems, and the doctors told us that we might lose her. And for, the, for several months, we didn't know. The doctors couldn't even give us a percentage. They said it would just, there's no way we can tell you what's going to happen. In fact, the doctors asked for permission to take our case to uh, a group of other doctors to be able to get consultation because our situation was unique and special. And when we held Eliana in our hands, or in our arms, what other name could we give her but a name that means God has heard and answered? In our culture, names may or may not mean something. But oftentimes in the Bible, names did mean something. In fact, if you received a name that as a young person or as a, uh, as a baby, of course, and, and it, sometimes there were, there were parents who did this. They would give their kids a bad name so that because there was a belief that if you had a good name, a demon might be interested in that and may try to possess the child. So if they gave them a bad name, maybe they wouldn't get, maybe they wouldn't get possessed. If I remember correctly, the name Caleb means little dog. Not exciting. His parents may have thought, you know, we may have believed that way, and others had different names. But what was also true is if your name didn't fit you as an adult, the community could change your name. The community could say, you know what? You've not been a deceiver. You've been somebody who's, who's been way above that. And we're going to change your name to mean something that's true about your character. And on this day, Jacob had a name change. He would now be called Israel, which means prince. Folks, when we get saved, we don't have name changes. Now, some cultures do. So, some African cultures, especially when they get saved, some of their names mean things uh, about their uh, old gods and so forth. And, and many times, uh, especially, and I'm thinking of African cultures, that there is the opportunity when they get saved that they would change their name at, at their baptism. That they, would, that they would have a name that would be closer to a spiritual name. Sometimes they would pick a name from the Bible. I read a story this week about uh, an, uh, an author by the last name of McDonald who, who was over in Africa and had met, met a lady, and he, and he asked her name, and, and she gave an American name, and, and he said, uh, what is your African name? And, of course, she said some long thing, a multiple-syllable thing that he couldn't, he couldn't, make heads or tails of. And he asked, he says, what does that name mean? And she said, my name means the one who takes away anger. The one who takes away anger. She said that her parents, against the wishes of, their par of each parent, they, these, they had gotten married. And his parents and her parents decided they weren't talking to their kids anymore because they weren't happy about it. That's probably not the best way to get your feelings across. But here they, 
this contention that neither side are willing to talk to each, to the kids and, and uh, to these young adults. And, and now this little girl is born. And when the grandparents came to hold and see their granddaughter, suddenly all the anger just melted away. And so her parents wanted to call her the one who takes away anger to remember what she had gifted them with. Jacob's name, now Israel, means that he's princely. And when we get saved, whether our name stays the same or not, what is true is we become adopted into the family of God and we have a princely or princessly status. Growing up, I had, there was a lady that I always called grandma as long as I could remember. She's not my blood. There's no, we have no DNA that, that is the same. But she has, as long as I can remember, she has been grandma. And until I die, she will be grandma. And when I would go to visit her house, what was hers was mine. I could walk in and I could go to the refrigerator and I, I could take whatever was in that refrigerator, whether it was food or pop, I could have it. Unless she was saving it for something special. But basically I had full access. Every time I'd go, it seemed like she would say, Jeremy, why don't you go into the freezer and get an ice cream? She liked to buy from Swans. And I tell you, I didn't mind it either. <laughs> When I went to grandma's house, I had the rights and privileges of her biological grandkids. Every single right they had, I had. Every privilege they had, I had. And because of this not legal adoption, but because of this uh, relational, emotional adoption, I was able to have full access anytime. There was never a time that I came over to Grandma's house unannounced that she said it's not a good time. There was never a time that I, that I went that she said, you know what, we, we, we're, we're not happy to see you. <laughs> never once. Because I was her grandson. And because of that, I could enjoy all the privileges and all the rights. You know, God could have, when he saved us, made us slaves. It had been his right. He could have said, you know, it's, you finally have come under. I have purchased you. And uh, whenever you purchase a person, you own them. They're a slave. I have purchased you with my blood. You are slaves. And God would have had absolute right to do that. And we wouldn't have known any better. But he didn't choose to do that. In fact, Jesus would say to his disciples, I have called you friends. And one of the great things about being the, the son or daughter of a king is that you have access to your king or your queen at any time. You have access. You know Prince George, he... As small as he is, what is he, four years old now? He can, he can go into the throne room anytime he pleases. And if he doesn't follow all the right protocols, nobody's going to have a fit. If you and I tried to walk into the, uh, the palace, we'd be in trouble if we lived through it. <laughs> but George can go to Grandma's house anytime he wants. And probably he can get on grandma's lap just about any time he wants. But you try getting on Queen Elizabeth's lap and see what happens. I looked up some of, I was trying to find out what some of the rights of, a, of Prince George was, what privileges he had. And he's got a lot of privileges. Do you know he gets millions of dollars in his own account every year? It's like, that'd be nice. <laughs> but 
Do you know we get millions of blessings in our account every single year? But there's a there's a there's a there's another right that the prince has that that I thought was unique. You no citizen can prosecute or sue a prince. They are exempt from all prosecution. I got thinking about that. You know the Bible tells us that Satan is the accuser of the brother, he's the prosecutor. And when we become the princes and princesses of God, we become exempt from all prosecution. Anything that Satan would want to bring up, you know, and he does, doesn't he? He brings up your past. He brings up what you used to do. But you just can tell him, I'm a prince. I'm a princess. I'm free. I'm exempt from all prosecution. It doesn't matter what I used to do. It doesn't matter what I've been guilty of. I am now adopted. I cannot be sued. Isn't that wonderful? Jacob walked out of there with a limp that reminded him that he was now a prince who had prevailed with God. That clock always moves way too fast. Let me just tell you that the, the limp also reminded Jacob, it was a permanent reminder that he was dependent on God. You know, Jacob's troubles didn't end here. Now, you know, we, we'd love if we, when we get saved, when we get in the right place with God and a right relationship with Him, that all of our troubles would go away. But after Jacob is reconciled with Esau, the next chapter after that, Jacob's daughter is raped. And two of his boys go and kill the whole city. The whole, all the men of the city. And now Jacob's terrified that all the, the citizens of that area would go and try to hunt them down and kill them. He now has a new worry and a new battle. In a few years, Rachel, his favorite wife, would die in childbirth. A few years after that, Joseph would be sold into slavery. And Jacob would be led to believe that he was dead. And a few years after that, they would face famine and starvation. And then a little bit after that, his sons would return and say, we can't go back unless we bring Benjamin with us. And Jacob would say, all these things are against me. And when you look at Jacob's life, you could see why he'd say that. He has suffered and suffered and suffered again. Not many of us would trade our lives for Jacob's, even after this moment. Tragedy after tragedy after tragedy. But Jacob would remain dependent upon the Lord. Going this way doesn't mean that life will be easy. It doesn't mean that life will be simple. It just means that we have the privilege of going to the throne room and reminding the Lord of the promises that he's made us and the promises we've made him. And God saw Jacob through and provided for his family time and time again. But all of this was made possible because Jacob became desperate. I want to just say again Vance Havner's quote. I think it's so apt as we prepare for revival. The times are desperate, but the saints are not. May that never be said of us, that we have not been desperate for God to move. Some time ago, I was reading a, a biography on Glenn Griffith, the great evangelist from yesteryear. Some of you older folks will remember him. 
he and a, another brother, I'm not sure if it was his biological brother or if it was a spiritual brother, but these two men were, had, were doing tent meetings and they had gone to, a, 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 to the place and, and uh, I don't know which one of them started it, but they said, let's, let's make a fast. Let's decide that we will not, neither one of us will eat until God breaks through on this tent meeting services. And so they made the decision. Day one came, they preached, they, they did their best, but there was no move of God. Day two and three and four, and I believe it was day five or six, that Glenn Griffith was so weak from fasting that as he tried to preach the message, they were taking turns, as I recall, preaching, that Glenn Griffith literally had to use his arms to hold himself up in the pulpit so that he could stay standing. He did not have enough strength in his legs to, to stand and preach. But God broke through in that service. Those two men became desperate for God to move. And God did. Jacob became desperate for God to move, and God did. And Altamont Holiness Church became desperate for God to move, and God did. And He did. And He will. And He will. Let's stand. Amen. Brother Jimmy, would you please dismiss us in prayer?